the road to recovery. You might be cruising down it. A friend or family member lost on it. Or the road is, well, still under construction. Relevant Recovery Radio is about getting to that destination of normal health, mind, or strength. Now, Relevant Recovery Radio, here to give you the keys, Heather and Donnie Mosier. Hello. Welcome to this week's episode of Relevant Recovery Radio. I'm your host, Heather Mosier. My other half, Donnie, is, has been abducted by aliens, and so he's not here today, so you're just stuck with me. Uh, I do need to mention that this show is sponsored by the Matthews Hope Foundation. Uh, we have a two-week detox in Houston, Texas, and if you complete our detox program, you can sign up for up to 24 months of free aftercare, recovery coaching, peer support, microcurrent neurofeedback, counseling, anything you need for two years. We are there to walk alongside you. I happen to be the executive director of recovery support, and we have a wonderful team of people that will help you or your loved one navigate recovery. And if you or a loved one is interested in our program or the help we offer, you can go to our website at www.mhdrp.org, herbert.org, or give us a call at 844-AND-HOPE. That's 844-263-4673. And you're listening to us today on KPRC AM 950 in H-Town or iHeartRadio app, Relevant Recovery Radio Channel, or any other streaming service we might be on. So I'd like to get right into the show today. I do have a guest in studio with me. His name is Max Flynn. Welcome to the show, Max. Thank you, Heather. Great to be here with you. I'm glad you're here because we've gotten to know each other a little bit over the last few weeks. Max and I are on a committee together for Soberfest HTX. So you Mm want to tell our listeners a little bit about your role in the committee and what is Soberfest? Yeah, so I was, um, as a... Houston-based artist and performing musician and songwriter, I was asked by someone on your committee to perform at the festival, Mm -hmm. and you were having a meeting, I believe, that day, and so I kind of rushed over there, (laughs) because I'm a control freak. (laughs) Me too. I wanted to make sure that this thing was... I wanted to make sure there was some artist input for a music festival. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I've been a part of these things as an artist Mm -hmm. before, and... You know, there are certain needs and expectations mm-hmm. that, that artists have. And so I was I was like, okay, who, who, what kind of artists are on this committee? Who's going to be right. handling the lineup? How are we going to do this? You know, what are the, the production needs? Just all these little things that mm-hmm. when, when somebody says, I want to throw a music festival. There's a lot that goes into that it. That they might not think about <laughs> from an artist perspective. Right, right. And so I just was like, okay, I'm going to be the advocate for artists here. And you ended up being the entertainment chair. <laughs> I, that came up, and I didn't even realize that would be a thing. Yeah. But uh, you know that position came up and for grabs, and I thought, why don't I just do that? That'd be great because I have a great network of musicians yep. here, uh, have experience <clears throat> being a part of festivals and understanding the needs. So, at, yeah, I ended up taking that on with with another lady, Brandy, and um, she's put together. great too. And I'm I'm glad y'all uh, have been on this committee with us and how any time. 40 sober people get together to try to plan anything. I imagine there's just like personalities and things like that, you know. Um, I always make a joke that I don't play with others very well. Um, But it's actually been um, a really great process, a really great process to watch everybody's skills and strengths come to light on this committee. And some of the artists that you've pulled in, uh, I've had Micah on the show a couple weeks ago, and and he's friends with you. And I'm really excited about Soberfest. I want it to get here already. Yeah, me too. And 
you brought up a great point about playing well with others. And I think, you know, as somebody who's been a sole proprietor now for six years full time, um, I don't do this very often. Yeah, I don't yeah. work with teams very often. And it's exposed a lot of things that I probably <laughs> need to work on, you know, Same. because in my mind, if I was running this whole thing, I'd everything would way. be perfect. Yeah. Right. But there's been a lot of different input and it's all valuable. And there's yeah. no no person's input is is greater or less than another's. And so I've I've it's exposed some things in me that I probably need to work on. I, um, <laughs> yeah. but same, awesome. I think, but I think that's the beauty of like how God, God kind of orchestrates things in our day to day life. Like everybody has strong skills and talents that I, that I don't have. And I'm like, yeah, help me. Cause I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm marketing chair. I'm like, come on and help. I don't know how Canva works or buffer or whatever it is. Right. Um, but I do want our listeners to know, go ahead and tell them like what, what Soberfest is, when it is, how they can get tickets and all that. We'll plug that now and at the end. Yeah, sure. So Soberfest is, is Houston's first ever sober music festival, mm-hmm. which is really unique. And it's going to be at, it's going to be at White Oak Music Hall on May 21st. It's going to be mm-hmm. from 12 to 6. So sometimes the older folks are asking me, what am I going to do a matinee show? <laughs> yeah. They're always complaining about my shows being too, too late. late. Well, here it is. <laughs> Here's your opportunity. We're playing at 2.30, and again, the whole thing wraps up at 6 o'clock. And we've got uh, we've got some sober artists. We've got some artists that aren't necessarily sober, but they're allies of the community yep. or maybe have family or friends that struggle. And yep. so love what we do in recovery. We've got a bunch of cool vendors mm-hmm. that are going to be selling goods and drinks and coffees and teas and barbecue, and it's just going to be an awesome day, I think, and mm-hmm. and I'm really really excited about it. And I've I've played both stages at White Oak Music Hall. This is a, a beautiful stage with really top notch production staff, and I know from from a sound standpoint, you're gonna be really impressed with that room. It's a beautiful space. I've been there for other concerts too, and I'm so excited because the idea. I remember when I was newly sober, and I went to Primus. I don't know if you know who Primus is, <laughs> but it's yeah. one of my first concerts sober. And I got beer spilt on me, but I lived in sober living, and I was really worried about going home smelling like beer. But I knew they would drug test me anyway every time mm-hmm. you go out. But uh, but the idea of this Houston's first and only sober music festival, where we just don't sell alcohol, we'll have mocktails and coffee bars and water and soda and all that sort of stuff. But it's just a safe environment where there's no like risk of of, being, of temptation for those newly sober. Yeah, I love that and. I want to stress too is not just for sober people. Right. Like everybody's welcome at this deal, and I mean honestly, I think there is even for those of us that are those out in the community that don't necessarily have a problem with alcohol. Mm-hmm. They're always feeling like <laughs> when they go out to a concert that they need to drink because everybody else is, mm-hmm. and there's that sort of peer pressure element. And for even, us, yeah, even like a normal person that just doesn't want to deal with all the drunk drivers when they leave a concert. Like this is a safe concert to go to, then you, you know, got it. You got it. <laughs> because it's like. There's there's a lot of elements involved. We want to show people that sober people can have fun too. Um, I love concerts. I go to a lot of concerts, and some. I remember when I got sober, thinking I wasn't going to get to go any to concerts anymore. You know, being sober now, and that's just absolutely not the case. And um, we want to pull sober artists, artists that are friends of the recovery community, and even all the vendors that that make cool stuff and they sell stuff. So, if anyone is interested in Soberfest, go to soberfesthtx.com. We'll be right back after this quick break.
Welcome back. You're listening to Relevant Recovery Radio. I'm your host, Heather Mosier. In studio with me, recording artist Max Flynn. Welcome. Thank you for having me. <laughs> and so we were talking about Soberfest, but I wanted to have you on too, not just as one as the artist, but you're one of the artists that is in recovery. That's true. And which I think is super cool. Uh, but how did you end up finding a life in recovery? What did maybe addiction look like for you? Yeah, I'll try to give you the abridged <laughs> version here. But, uh, you know, I was born and raised in Houston, Texas to a great family here in the in the Bel Air area. I went to Bel Air High School. And, you know, at that particular high school, we liked to we liked to have a good time. We liked to party a lot. You yeah. know, it was, it was football and baseball was was big for us at that time. And on the weekends, we just blew it out. We figured out <laughs> whose parents were out of town and yeah. we just had fun drinking and smoking <laughs> pot or whatever, yeah. you know. Um, Do you think that that's normal for almost all high school people? I don't know. I can't say because I'm not in that community anymore. But because I, in my mind, that's normal. All teenagers do that. Like, not all of them become drug addicts or alcoholics. But in my mind, all experiment. And I think it's I think it's really rare for someone to not. But I just don't know if I'm jaded and like not in reality. Sure. But that was your reality too. Is that that's just what everybody did? Yeah. At least my immediate friend group. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly you know classmates of ours that didn't partake in that yeah. kind of thing and were. You know, ready to get into a great college, Go to college and, and move on yeah. and uh, get a great job and things. But, but anyway, that's how it was for for me and my friends. And, um, you know, I we talked off air, but you know, marijuana was a big part of my life at that mm-hmm. time, uh, and it slowly became something that was fun on the weekends. It's something that I felt like I needed to do from the moment I awoke in the morning. Yeah. Um, to the point where I would I would go in the shower and turn on full steam. I mean, it was like right next to my parents' bedroom, by the way, and then yeah. smoke weed and then blow it up into the vent. Yeah, as if they wouldn't smell that yeah. from one room over. <laughs> and it's funny now, like I, you know, I've been sober ten years, but I can smell somebody smoking weed from a mile away. Oh yes. So yes. to think that I was able to do that in the bathroom yeah. next to them, I mean, they knew every time. Okay, I wasn't hiding anything. And um, you said you had really great parents. How did they react to the early days of this? Uh, not great. I mean, they were, they were worried about it. Consequences? They were, there was consequences yeah. for sure. They were, you know, they'd find paraphernalia, they'd take it, they'd ground me and things like that. And Did, I was, and I'm assuming that didn't work so well. No, there was conflict all the time. Yeah. Unfortunately, you know, my mom and I are best friends today, but we, there was a lot of conflict. It was tough. It was tough on them, tough on their marriage. And, you know, it's not something I'm proud of. But, yeah. Um, so the, the smoking marijuana, it, it gave me some real social anxiety, right, that, that mm-hmm. wasn't fun around people anymore. But yeah. then I discovered benzodiazepines, right? Yeah. For those of you who don't know what those are, that's Xanax, Valium, things of those nature. Clonopin. And Yeah, all of that. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that put me at ease. Mm-hmm. Oh, so, I bet it did. You know, rather than just not smoking weed to not experience <laughs> that anxiety. I wasn't going to do that because that didn't make sense to me. But adding another substance. But adding another substance. To fix the, the, the symptom of the other substance. Right. Yeah. Makes sense to me. So, so yeah. So I added that in there. Um, also, you know, I was I was playing football in high school. I was the quarterback at Beller High School, and, and I, I shattered my wrist mm. at, like, junior year and still have the scars to prove it. But uh, that was – exposure to opiates for oh, the first yeah. time how old were you probably 15 or 16 you know um and and that those those felt great too yeah i really immediately you know vicodin i, I really loved that mm-hmm. um so when that 30-day supply from that surgery went out i i quickly found out that there were guys in high school selling those mm-hmm. okay you know um 
back in the day, the DEA's really cracked down on now, yeah. prescription opioids, right? We all know that there's a big epidemic going on, but back then you could doctor shop around Houston. Same. Back when I wasn't sober on opiates, you, the, the pharmacists didn't compare notes like they do now. And right. I could go to a doctor on base and a doctor off base and all of that. So that's what you were doing yeah. out here. I mean, up and down Bel Air Boulevard and Bissonette, kind of towards the west side of town, you'd have these pain management clinics mm. and you could go in there with a script every single day and get a 90-day supply of oh. of Xanax, Vicodin, and, and Somas. It yeah. was like this that was the combo. weird thing that they handed out to kids <laughs> for some <laughs> right. reason. Um, so anyway, so it was prevalent. It was, it was mm-hmm. available, and they were cheap at the time. And so just starting on those things and... And uh, unfortunately, even for those of us that aren't necessarily predisposed to addiction or alcoholism, you know, with opiates, it's really unique because there's this intense physical addiction. The that, chemical dependency part. That happens mm-hmm. where, um, you know, after even just a couple weeks of taking those things, if you stop, you really want them. Your body is saying, I need that. Yeah. And then it's all of a sudden you're getting sick and there's just a, a host of really unfavorable symptoms. Yeah. I think if that. you took 100 people and you put them in a room for a month. And you gave them, a, you know, two doses of Vicodin every day for a month, 100 people every day. At the end of the uh, 30 days, 100 people will be chemically dependent on Vicodin or whatever it is. They're going to get sick without it. But only like 9% are going to continue to struggle with returning to the substance after they've gotten well, after they've detoxed, and which is chronic addiction, is returning to it insanely, if you will, um, after a period of sobriety. Right. And, uh, and so chemical dependency is real, for sure, with opiates, most importantly. And so when you had that surgery... And you realized, I like how these make me feel. Did you did you fall into chemical because there was no separation in the time you used? Yeah, certainly. And by the way, I would not want to be one of those hundred people doing that <laughs> right. study. I've been there, done that, and that is, <laughs> I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. Right. Truly, mm-hmm. you know. But you're right. At the end of those hundred days, you're gonna have some people that say, "Well, that really sucked," yep. and I'm not gonna do that again. Yep. And then you got the other 9% will say, well, that did suck, but I liked it more than the suck, mm-hmm. you know, of getting off of them. And so that, that definitely was, was me, you me know, too. it's, it's as painful as it was to not have them for a few days or as painful as it was to come off of them or go to treatment and go through that whole detox mm-hmm. period. I was like, you know, it, it's, it's not enough. That memory of that pain is not sufficient enough to, to keep stop, yeah. me sober. It's really bizarre. I mean, even... Even all these years later, 10 years now of, mm-hmm. of sobriety, I cannot recall with with enough sufficient force, really, the, how painful it was. Right. I mean, that would not stop me. Right. And so I today. love that you're hitting on that and we're kind of going because uh, I, I love the literature of the program that I'm in. And it literally has this whole paragraph about, well, it has many pages about it, but Here's the deal. If I can look at that stack of evidence in my life and say, oh, well, look at this stack of evidence. I don't drink or do drugs very well. If that stack of evidence is sufficient to stop me, for me to say no 100% of the time, then I don't have chronic addiction. I can just go be sober. Right. But for someone like me, man, I can see that stack of evidence and it's not sufficient to stop me 100% of the time. Um, I do the insane thing and my brain's just like, well, well here's a different way. Or here's a different substance. Or here's a different combo you can try. Because my problem was me sober. I was uncomfortable being me sober. I felt normal on drugs. Right. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, just to 
continue out that story, you know, it it just got worse and worse over time. Yeah. I mean, and to the point where, you know, when it was all said and done, you know, there was about six or seven different rehabs that I went to, five mm-hmm. or six different trips to jail. And yeah. finally, you know, I, I got lucky enough really to get to a point where I said, this is this is enough. Yeah. And, and I went back to what I knew would work mm-hmm. for me, you know, which was which was humbling myself and, and asking for help and bringing some people into that space. And yeah. and I haven't uh, I haven't looked back ever since. It's pretty cool, though. Do you think that the the rehabs experiences because I went to treatment five times, too. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> did you want to get sober every single one of those times? I did. I did too. Yeah, I did, and I, and I know it, it's easy to look back and see what a waste of time. But honestly, <laughs> yeah. I feel like seeds were planted yep. at each one because ultimately the things that they were talking about and the things that they were teaching was exactly what I ended up doing later. and exactly the tools that I ended up using later on. And sometimes you have to get to a point where each one of my rehab experiences helped me find the end of me later. Mm -hmm. Um, but it was like, uh, I had, I had such ideas of how I was going to do it and what I needed to do and what I didn't need to do. And that wasn't for me. I was just so opinionated, but yet I kept getting loaded after I left and like my ideas weren't working. And so I think all of that culminated, like you were saying, these seeds that were planted for you that, you know, what, what did they say when the student is ready, the teacher appears sort of thing. And that's probably like, was your moment. It God was like, now it's time. You're going to get sober. Yep. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Relevant Recovery Radio. We will be right back. Welcome back. You're listening to Relevant Recovery Radio. I'm your host, Heather Mosier, special guest in studio, recording artist Max Flynn of Soberfest, HTX. And um, we're getting to learn a little bit about your recovery story and how you found So eventually you said, hey, I'm going to do what these people have been telling me, encouraging me to do. And it worked? Yeah, it did. <laughs> it was, it was the, the same story that I learned in all those rehabs yeah. that, of what to do and how to do it. Mm-hmm. So I just took those tools and said... I finally just surrendered. I said, okay, I'm going to give this a real mm-hmm. shot, like no matter what. Meaning even when I feel like I've got to use or I, I feel like I can't handle it, just one more day, hang on. And then ultimately that culminates into months and then years, and it gets easier yeah. over time, luckily. You know, I have, I have lots of things that I still struggle with today, but, yep. but alcohol and drugs is just not one of them. It's at the very bottom of yep. the list of yep. the things that I that I turn to when I'm angry or lonely or yeah. sad or whatever you yeah, know there's for sure other things like like maybe relationships or shopping or you know there's all sorts of food you know that people may turn to but um it's beautiful to be able to sit here and say the desire to drink and do drugs has been removed totally that i don't have to find you don't have to find the drink or the drug idea and so what did what kind of encouragement would you give to someone newly sober listening what was it like inside when you were newly sober versus what sort of freedom do you have now? Yeah, so I really dove into a program. I surrounded myself with like-minded people who were struggling with the same thing that I was, who had Mm -hmm. done this a little bit longer than me and had incredible advice and encouragement and hope and strength to offer to me. Yeah. Um, To the point where I know I'm a full-time musician now, but I set up a lot of boundaries. You know, I didn't go to, I didn't go to certain bars. I didn't hang out with certain people 
you know, I set up those boundaries, uh, really insulated myself in a recovery type of mm-hmm. community for a year and a half to a couple of years. Mm-hmm. It's totally different now. I spend right. more time. <laughs> I spend literally more time in bars than I do in my recovery community. Yeah, because I'm free to do that. You're free, and that's an amazing feeling. But uh, but I certainly insulated myself for a while before I built the you know I had to build a foundation right but, you know. and I, I always ask clients to do that at Matthew's help is what do you need to avoid in early recovery until you get solid later yeah. but uh, so with the music and you being a musician were you always a musician how did you find your talents how did that develop and how did you say this is what I want to do yeah so I was I was playing a little toy guitar since I was two or three years old okay. you know that was a thing that I always loved doing. Um, it was just, there was this singer, this this kid's singer. He was his name was Raffy. I used to sit in front of the TV and watch this guy Raffy and just play a little broomstick along and <laughs> yeah. sing out at the top of my lungs, and that was my thing. And so uh, throughout high school, I kind of became the guy that would show up to the parties with the guitar mm-hmm. and play the you know these Texas country songs everybody liked or classic rock or whatever, mm-hmm. and, and we'd all sing along and have a good time. Um, but through the through the worst of my addiction years, which is probably you know. I got sober at 24, but probably, you know, 17 to like 18 to 24, maybe. I mean, there was like no music at all happening. It was mm-hmm. really just full-blown addiction, controlling everything. I mean, yeah. there was guitars that I did once own that were in pawn shops yep. and stuff. You know, honestly, it's yeah. that took over everything, just destroyed my priorities and what I love to do. Mm-hmm. But um yeah, getting getting sober again. You know, I would I would uh, I started picking it up again. What I did was I graduated from the University of Houston with a degree in finance. I mm-hmm. was able to somehow through enough Adderall and Vivance pull off a <laughs> yeah. a really good degree <laughs> in finance and and got a uh, got a job at at uh, an oil and gas company downtown. Mm-hmm. And what a great career that was! And I was very fortunate to have that, especially with my background with a criminal record. Right. I mean, I had to be upfront with them about it. But it was a huge blessing in my life. That was around the time when I really was just finally getting sober, too. Yeah. So I got sober probably with a sem- semester left of, of college, went into that workplace and, and was grinding it out. I mean, 50, 60 hours a week, 8 to 5 yeah. at the office downtown Houston, learning what it's like to live in the real world and be a part of the business community. However, at the same time, I started picking up guitar again. Yeah. I started writing songs again. I was... Going to um, open mics and stuff. Okay. At uh, the Mucky Duck, I'd go to the open mic. <laughs> yeah. And I started playing some original songs, and I got really good feedback mm. from the crowd. You know, and up to that point, the the positive feedback that I would get was from my mom and like a few select <laughs> friends. Yeah. You know, so I needed some feedback from the outside world to kind of validate what I'm doing and if I'm any good. You yeah. Know? And but it so, probably ignited that passion again in you. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm working 50, 60 hours a week, and now I'm, I cut a little demo with some musicians that I met in Houston, and I'm taking that around to different bars and clubs and mm-hmm. live music venues, and I'm starting to book gigs now for mm-hmm. actual money. Yeah. So I'm working 50, 60 hours a week, and I'm playing gigs every weekend. Mm-hmm. And that starts kind of turning That's into more lot. and more stuff, and I get bigger and better gigs, mm-hmm. stuff at the rodeo, and every once in a while, the Houston Press or the Chronicles kind of like writing about me and writing about my shows, and mm-hmm. it becomes like a little bit of a workplace distraction situation yeah. where, you know, they're talking about that all the time, and I should yeah. be talking about work, and I just can't focus at this point anymore. Right. I'm just thinking about music. I'm looking at other guys and girls in 
in the music industry that are that are doing it full time, mm-hmm. that are doing what I want to do full time. Right. And here I am just totally conflicted, right, at this desk job, knowing that what I really want to do is play music full time. Right. And what a heavy decision, though. I'm sure you prayed a lot about it, trying to figure out if that's like what you're supposed to do. But what was what was it that made you say, I'm, I'm making the jump. I'm going to do music full time. Well, one, one thing. So I started looking to see what, what do these people all have in common? Right. The musicians that are at the level that I want to be at, what do they all have in common? Mm-hmm. And the one thing they all have in common is that they're all 110 percent all full time musicians. Mm-hmm. They're not working desk jobs 50, 60 hours a week. Right. <laughs> so I knew that that had to happen, mm-hmm. but I didn't know when or how to make it happen. Mm-hmm. So I just got busier and busier and busier with music so I could, if it ever did happen, that I would financially be okay mm-hmm. to to pay my basic living expenses. Right. Um, I was really getting ready to go ahead and cut the cord and make the leap when they fired me. Oh, Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so God made the decision for you. Right. Uh, <laughs> and by them firing me, this worked out great because I got to collect unemployment. Oh, so that funded you starting up? Yeah. Wow. I mean, big time. So uh, had I quit, you don't get that right? unemployment. Right. <laughs> uh, I felt like I was I was a good employee up to the end, but I, I in reality, I probably was not. Right. I mean, my, my heart wasn't in it for... A, a while now, right. maybe maybe two years, you know. Right. I don't know that my heart was ever in it because, quite honestly, it felt incredibly stifling to me, and it was, I you know, really hard day to day. Do you? I think that it. Some people will say it's just a job. Find a job that you're you can do and make money to provide. But some people are like, but what do you want to do? And like for me, that was such a foreign idea that you could have a job or a career of something you have a passion for. Uh, and when I got sober, God kind of uh, evolved that in me, doing something that I have a great passion for. Uh, my life, whole life is recovery, and it's I have the greatest passion for it. And I imagine it's the same for you for music that God was orchestrating in your life to help you launch off and do what he's put in your heart that, that to have the passion for. But it's still scary nonetheless. It's still scary, um, 100%. And, you know, I've been I've been doing it. Full time now for six over six years, okay. and there's not one day that I haven't taken for granted because <laughs> I I love it so much. I love being able to wake up on a Tuesday and come over here and talk to you and like I mean I just you don't have that kind of freedom when you're when you're working for the man, you know. And tell our listeners how they can find your music and what are you on and what's your album names and talk about your music for a minute. Yeah, thank you. So. So it's Max Flynn, M A X F L I N N, and of course I'm on all the social platforms, mm-hmm. and I have a website, maxflynn.com, and I also have all of those, all of those songs, all of my music, on all the streaming services, so Apple Music, Amazon, Spotify, okay, etc. And recently I've been getting some good playlists on those platforms too, so getting a lot more, a lot more exposure on some. What's on some your songs. specialty genre, and like what um, song are you most proud of writing? So I think, uh, as far as kind of on topic with what we've been talking about, there's a there's a song called "Meant to Be" that really mm-hmm. talks about my story and, and, and my journey. Okay. On this last record, the whole record's called "Meant to Be," and I think, you know, if you want to know a little bit about me, you might Listen check to out that song. Start start there, but but the the last two recent songs I've released have been getting a lot of good traction. So, okay. what's the name see. of them? 
there's one called Northern Girls Like Mine, and then one I released on Friday is called Listening to Love Songs. Okay, cool. I just, I love hearing someone talk about what they're passionate about, and uh, it's cool to watch what God's done in each one of our lives. And when it comes to this recovery thing, if we're kind of tying it all in, um, I asked you before we even came upstairs, I, something I ask every guest, I said, do you think you keep you sober or do you think God keeps you sober? And you said, God keeps me sober. And speak to that for a minute on your your internal condition in sobriety today. Yeah, well, it's really dependent upon waking up in the morning and, and spending some time with God, and I just can't do it on my own, unfortunately. Right. <laughs> right. If I could, I would, but I can't. <laughs> Me neither. Uh, we do have to take a quick break. You're listening to Relevant Recovery Radio. We'll be right back after this quick break with Max Flynn. Welcome back. You're listening to Relevant Recovery Radio. I'm your host, Heather Mosier, special guest, recording artist, Max Flynn, in studio with me today to talk about Silverfest, his music, his recovery, um, all the cool things. Here's the deal. Uh, I was excited because you were talking about, I think you and your mom do interventions together. And and here's my jo- my self-centered joke in my mind. Okay. When I was newly sober and I would hear people talk about how their families interventioned them, I literally thought, well, my family didn't even love me enough to do an intervention on me. Like, that was another reason I was resentful at them mm-hmm. is that they didn't intervention me. But really, they had no idea those tools were available. I did get interventioned later in Kerrville with a boyfriend's mom, a boyfriend that I had at the time. His mom interventioned us, and I said no. Um, I was just like, you know, completely unapproachable, unhelpable, like didn't want to hear it. But describe to me like how you and your mom ended up doing that and like how does that work? What is an intervention? Yeah, so it kind of starts back in 2011 when they kind of followed through on a promise to uh, if I screwed up one more time, if I got arrested one more time, that was it. Mm -hmm. So uh, that happened. In 2011, I got arrested again. I called from jail and she said, this is it. We're not, we're not bailing you out this time, you know, sorry, mm-hmm. and hung up. And I couldn't <laughs> believe that it was actually happening. And I didn't have a key to the house anymore. They sold my car. They sold my apartment. So I had to wait for that that case to sit my time out in jail for that case to go through and then figure it out once I got out. I was mm-hmm. totally on my own. And I'm, I'm a kid that was, you know, Silver Spoon kid in Bel Air, Texas, that got you know mm-hmm. really taken care of and spoiled by his parents, and yeah. so that was a that was a rude awakening for me at at uh, nineteen. But looking back now, do you think that your parents did the right thing? Yeah, of course they yeah. did. Mm-hmm. Right, uh, we hear about tough love all the time, uh-huh. and it's really hard for a parent to do. I can't imagine what that was like for her to do. I don't have yeah. kids of my own, but I can only imagine how hard that was for her. Yeah. So, really, really hated her at the time yeah. for that. Hated both of my parents at the time for that. But, you know, now having come full circle, I, I really, I think that that was the catalyst for me. Mm-hmm. Like, I realized, okay, I am on my own. I'm not cut out for homelessness. I don't know what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. I, I need their support. I need help. And so got myself back into treatment that would let me back in down in Dickinson, Texas, and, and the rest is history. But my mom, uh, she's, she's been an LPC, so she's been a therapist oh, okay. for 12 years now. She deals with everything from adolescence to marriage and 
all sorts of counseling services, but you know, she she's obviously seen a lot of addiction and alcoholism just yeah. come through her office, as most therapists would, right? Right. Uh, a lot of self medication. Yeah. And she started noticing the need for possibly interventions, and she asked me, like, "Hey, would you think?" She went to some training for it, actually, mm-hmm. out in Florida or something, and she asked me, "Would you want to be a part of this?" And, and I thought about it. I was like, "Well, this is a great idea because my mom knows what it's like to kick her son out of the house yeah. and cut the cord, and I know what it's like to be." The person in it, in it that that's <laughs> happening to, and and now we've come together, and like I said earlier, we're best friends, and yeah. and and we have this amazing relationship right. coming from that place, right? right? And so, when you can sit with a family and the addict or alcoholic, and I can speak from his perspective, his or her perspective, and my mom can speak from the family's perspective, you know, it really is a is a unique experience. I because think. it becomes uh, organizing just as much support for the family or the you know trying to deal with the person with the substance use disorder, as as it is helping the person with the substance use disorder. Because a lot of families have no clue how to navigate something like that. Right. They have. My parents didn't. They had no clue what to do with me. Um, and do you ever think that there are certain situations where an intervention would be inappropriate to do? And if so, why? Yeah, I mean, one one scenario that just popped into my head, that's probably a long discussion, but one one (laughs) scenario that popped in my head would be uh, a scenario in which uh, a bunch of buddies that do a bunch of drinking and using together want to have an intervention on another another guy. Yep, yep. So we're always really particular about who the team's going to be. Right. We do a lot of work on the front end. Mm -hmm. We need people that are not the drinking buddy to be there. Right. Right, you know. Um, And there's probably a lot of scenarios I can't, think of them off the top of my head but one thing I want to do that I want to point out with Uh interventions is we we talk a lot in in recovery groups about about hitting rock bottom you know and that being the point when people say I'm done or I'm ready to surrender and and the truth is is that can go as low as yeah it's like an elevator you get off when you want kind of thing but I think that a a well-planned intervention I think well-orchestrated well-planned intervention can actually raise the bottom for people. Mm-hmm. And, and here's what I mean by that. Um, when you have a, everybody's trying to help. Okay, everybody's trying to do what they can, right? Yeah. But, you, you know, sometimes mom is saying one thing, wife is saying another thing, dad's saying another thing, and they're just, for the, from the alcoholic addict's perspective, there's all this noise. Right. And what they do is they go and find the person that's saying the most appropriate and easiest thing for them. Yeah. You know, they go to dad. If dad's getting the answers that they want, they yeah. go to dad, right? They don't mess with mom because mom's giving them something that's not going to help feed their addiction anymore. Right. right. Dad might be saying, hey, listen, I'll give you, I'll, I'll, I'll keep paying your rent, but you need to quit smoking weed on the weekdays <laughs> right. or, you know. Whatever it is. Yeah. Just limit your drinking to the weekends. Mm-hmm. Well, we know that's not going to help. Yeah. Somebody that's. You know what I mean? Yep. And so so we can come in and we can say, look, everybody that has any influence on this person's life was all going to get on the same page. Yeah. We're going to eliminate this thing continuing to push down and down and down the road. Because it just doesn't work if not everybody's on the same page. Exactly. If there's still one person left enabling, then they're going to go to that person. 100%. And so we've seen that with a lot of kids, right? Because yeah. Maybe the parents are split up, right. but they know they can always go to dad's house. Right. Right? If something goes bad, they can always go to mom's house, whatever the scenario is. Yeah. But if we get mom and dad, whether they're, you know, on speaking terms or not, if, I mean, you but know, just if, have we, the same if rules. we can get them on the same page, yeah. then that kid all of a sudden has no enabler. 
right? Right. And that that's what happened to me. I don't think that that my bottom was my parents, you know, cutting the cord. Mm-hmm. If they didn't do that, if they continue to pay my rent and do all these things, I don't know if I'd be here right now. Because it would have prolonged you. Why would you seek a, a, a solution if you had your life band-aided still? Yeah, which it was for a long time. Yeah, right? yeah same with, with me. Rent and car yeah. payments and things. So if someone's curious about information on interventions and so how they con- how do how does someone contact you and your mom? So we are day one interventions. It's www.dayoneinterventions.com. Okay. You can look up my mom and her private practice if you want to reach out to her individually. Her she's Beth Flynn, B E T H F L I N N here in Houston. I'm Max Flynn. We talked about how to reach me earlier. And uh, info at day one interventions will be the email if you if you're curious about Okay, that kind cool. Of thing. And to, so before we run out of time, let's get back to Silverfest just a little bit because uh, I want to remind our uh, listeners what it is and who's going to be there, who's playing, the times. Because it's I think it's really important to mention it's a family-friendly event that even if you have kids um, yeah. you can or your spouse is just a normal person and not in recovery, everybody is invited. So I want to give you an, another opportunity to talk about Silverfest again. Yeah, family-friendly uh Sober fun from 12 to 6 at, at the beautiful White Oak Music Hall. We got myself playing Micah Edwards, South Texas Tweak, who's another country band. Um, Legacy Man, who's a lot of fun. He rollerblades and does Japanese techno beats. I don't <laughs> yeah. even know how to describe it. He's, I'm so excited to see him. Yeah, he's great. Uh, Katarina, Chris Lively, and a band called Indigo. And also DJ, DJ, sorry, that'll be kind of outside where the uh, where the barbecue area is, I think. Because we're having a couple food trucks, Teague's Barbecue, yeah. something like 10 vendors. So it's going to be a good time. You and your family can come and make a day of it. Um, if you cannot afford tickets and you would like to come to Soberfest, go to SoberfestHTX.com. Click on tickets, but scroll all the way down to scholarship. And you can get tickets there. And so I just want our listeners to know that if they could not afford it, that the tickets are there. That's awesome. Um, thank you so much. Uh, I really enjoyed getting to know you and being on this committee and serving our community with you. And I'm excited to hear you play on May 21st at Soberfest. Fest. So thank you, Max, for coming on the show. You bet, Heather. Really, really enjoyed it. It's been great. And don't forget, guys and girls, those who stand for nothing will fall for anything. Hashtag God, though. Thank you.